0: This past Friday, June 24th, in the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision, the Supreme Court overturned the 50-year precedent Roe v. Wade, allowing for immediate state-level bans on abortion. What philosophical ideas led the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade? Why were defenders of abortion rights unable to succeed in their defense? And what political options are available now for those who still want to safeguard abortion rights and individual freedom more broadly in America? Well, today we will be examining these questions and the reasoning behind uh, both the Dobbs decision and the dissent and discuss the path forward to, uh, for individual freedom in America. Welcome to New Ideal Live. Uh, this is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today we'll discuss the topic, the death of abortion rights in America, A post mortem. My name is Ben Baer. I am a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me are senior fellow, Yaron, uh, senior fellow Ankar Gate, and uh, chairman of ARI's board, Yaron Brooke. Welcome, Yaron and Ankar. Hi, Ben. Ben? So, yeah, I I said just a moment ago we discussed the decision and the dissent. Um, I think we shouldn't spend Quite as much time on the decision because we we've done this already when this when this decision the draft of the decision was it le- was leaked at the beginning of May we did a podcast episode on this uh, you can look this up uh, from just shortly after that early May it was called uh, the uh, Roe v Wade sorry it was the um, well it was it was about the leak decision and how it was opposed to the rule of law. Uh, when we got the actual decision the there were not many substantive changes. There were a few responses to the dissent, but otherwise, the argument of it remained essentially the same. and so uh, we're we're not going to spend too much time talking about the what we take to be the flaws in the decision that we've just encountered recently we uh, the The major criticism I think that we gave, and Ankar, if you want to add anything briefly on this, let me know, was that the uh, the decision basically emptied the idea of liberty of any meaning as as it is given in the constitution it treats it as a kind of floating abstraction a lot of hot air that has no concrete applications to uh, our world around us today so uh, ankar did you want to ankar your own did you want to add anything before we move on to talk about the concurrences or the dissent
1: uh, yeah so that just what the emptying of liberty what of the right to liberty in, or in the concept of the principle what that means it is and ha, sort of how that plays out is that okay they can find a mention of liberty in the constitution but they can't find a mention of abortion or of privacy and the previous decisions are talking about a right to abortion and a right to privacy we can't find those and the the their whole way of looking at the right to liberty and the concept of liberty, if it's hot air, we also can't find it there. So we're looking around. we can't we can't find any such thing as a right to privacy, a right to abortion, a right to personal liberty. and so And the result then is, okay, so what do we do? We have to go by history and tradition. It, now, it's more complex than that, that's what's going on, but that's the, what, why it's relevant that they've emptied it is supposedly abortion and privacy are contained in liberty, and they say, well, no, that's impossible, basically, is what they say.
0: And, and one of the reasons that the question about uh, their standard of whether or not a particular right is deeply entrenched in a nation's history and tradition is, well, it also looks like a lot of other things the court has recently recognized as rights, such as the right to obtain contraception, the right to have a gay marriage, the right to have an uh, interracial marriage. These aren't, these definitely weren't in the nation's history or tradition either. And so there's there's a question well, they, about whether these are going to need to be overturned by the same reasoning. And there was a cherry picking, I mean, they seem to be cherry picking the history, right? And tradition.
2: So they seem to be cherry picking when A particular law, uh, you know, for example, common law, uh, common law with regard to abortion in the um, late 18th century um, was, you know, it didn't criminalize abortion, at least not until the mother could sense something about the mother sensing, um, sensing the fetus, Uh, but they picked the mid, the late 19th century where it was uh they picked the, the passing of the 14th amendment where it was criminalized uh with guns they picked 1789 rather than you know so they're, they're cherry picking their history and tradition as they must in a case like the in if that's the standard um to get to the to kind of get to the outcome that they seemingly want starting out
0: So one of the things that is new in the decision is the concurrences. We got concurrences from Justice Thomas, uh, Justices Thomas, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. And what a a concurrence is in a Supreme Court decision is a a statement written by one of the justices who votes with the majority opinion in favor of uh, holding, uh, of the holding in favor of overturning in this case, the Mississippi law but where the particular concurring justice doesn't necessarily agree with all of the reasoning stated in the majority opinion, uh, or maybe who doesn't agree with the implications drawn from that decision. And uh, it's worth at least talking briefly about Thomas's concurrence, because uh, his uh, he, he definitely agrees with the holding and he agrees with the reasons, but he sort of doubles down on uh, some of these reasons. and. It, One of the most widely noted portions of his concurrence is his statement that he's open to in fact, overturning many of the precedents that I just mentioned, which uh, found there to be some kind of unenumerated right that wasn't part of the nation's legal history and tradition Uh, precedents where say they found the right to contraception or the right to same sex marriage. Uh, he, He does this by arguing that he thinks there's a problem with this doctrine of what's called substantive due process. This is the idea that you can read certain kinds of liberty rights out of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, Though Justice Thomas does say he would entertain other reasons for striking down some of those laws. And Ankara, I know you had a few thoughts on Justice Thomas's opinion here and how it's been processed by the media. Did you want to share some of those?
1: Yes. I think it's been distorted what he's actually saying and what he's re- says in other cases including dissents in other cases and he refers to some of those in his concurrence in Dobbs and you have to take all that into consideration when you're trying to figure out what his actual view is and then if you're trying to predict what how a judge would rule in the future, you have to take all of the things he's saying into account. So the, one of the things he says in the concurrence is substantive due process is an oxymoron that due pro- process refers to the process, not the substance. And so to have substance due process that he thinks it's an oxymoron. So he, in like that's a pretty strong criticism of it. So he would, from this concurrence, he would get rid of that completely. And if you take that to mean then, okay, so that he doesn't think the 14th Amendment has any protection for rights, if that's how you read getting rid of substantive due process, I just think you're reading him wrong because in part of his whole um, uh, the, the writings about the court, it's what he says is that if the 14th Amendment protects rights of citizens, It does it through a different means than due process. So this is what the the relevant part of the first section of the 14th Amendment says. It says, quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, semicolon, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. Semicolon, nor deny to any person with, within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Close quote. So, this is the two last things are called the due process clause and the equal protection clause. But everybody's forgot about the first part privileges and immunities. And that's as a result of the slaughterhouse cases, maybe others of that late 19th century. And what he wants to do is say if there's protection of rights, it's through that privileges or immunities is a way in the 19th century of referring to a citizen's rights. So it's not that he's just saying the 14th Amendment has nothing to do with rights. It's that the due process clause isn't the place to find its protection for rights. But having said that, if you do this historical and traditional analysis in the on the model of what they do in Dobbs, what rights that will lead to is um, that is a real question. And would it would you have contraception, same sex marriage, or even just like the laws against sodomy? Would those be constitutional? So that's a real like a, a, it's 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 a completely open. I think in terms of uh, just thinking about the reasoning in Dobbs. So there is a real threat there, but not I think in the way that people are understanding.
0: So, how do you yeah he says you, he'd entertain a way of overturning those laws, but doesn't say that he would what how he would rule
2: well, but again, it's it's the reasoning of uh, if he accepts the the historical kind of reasoning of Dobbs, where you look at the laws when it was passed and what was accepted as uh, privileges and immunities or rights, then you know, then then uh, none of these exist. Right? Gay marriage certainly doesn't exist in the nineteenth century. so you y- you don't. Uh, you know how do you how do you see the Ninth Amendment fitting into all of this in terms
1: of how they should rule versus how they are ruling? It should the Ninth Amendment should be revived. It's, it's one of the it's the forgotten amendment, I think, yeah. and one of the tragedies in this, in just in terms of the legal uh, sort of the legal train of thought in Roe the district court ruled that the Ninth Amendment is Hmm. where the right to abortion comes from. It ruled, so the the Ninth Amendment is, the citizens possess rights and not they possess like lesser rights, rights that don't really matter, rights that you shouldn't take into account. It's they possess rights that are not in the first eight um, rights listed in the Bill of Rights. And the Ninth Court ruled that that includes a woman's control over the decision of whether to uh take an embryo and to term and give birth and, so, and roe said it didn't reject that but it said the decision says well the ninth court finds it in uh, sorry the district court finds it in the ninth amendment we find it in the 14th or we they, they, they don't even find. we feel that's the language they use, we feel it's in the protected by the 14th and that it would have been so much better if they had taken the district court's view of this and said, yeah, they're right. It's in the Ninth
2: Amendment. And, and what do you think prevents them from, I don't know if you're going to talk about this in your talk at Ocon, but what do you think prevents them from resurrecting the Ninth? Are they, are they afraid that that opens up? Uh, they have no idea how to deal with it because they have no, no real conception of rights. Um, it, it, does it open up a
1: whole can of worms from their perspective because they can't? Delimit it. I think that is the fundamental worry. There's other. There are interpretations of the Ninth Amendment that um, that it protects less than what it seems to protect. I think those interpretations are incorrect. But there are views that it um, that you can't read it in a broad sense of the of of thinking of it as how they talked about it at the founding that there's natural rights. Um, that it's protecting all of that. I think it is, but there are scholarly views that say not. But in terms of judges, I think, yes, the ultimate worry is people. And unfortunately, I think the ultimate worry is then people would have too many rights. But isn't there some legitimacy there in a sense of
2: the concern, because we don't have a good definition of rights, the concern then is you have a right to a job and you have a right to food and you have a right to, you know, the, the kind of leftist view of rights. They're also yes. concerned about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it all boils down
2: to not having a proper definition of, of, of rights. All right, Ben, ben so we want you to should talk- mention the book
0: just, just periodically, just as a Well, yeah, we'll definitely do that at the end. But uh, if, yeah, if you're interested in what a proper conception of rights would look like that you need to try to understand this topic, Uh, this is one of the things I talk about in the book in, in why the right to abortion is sacrosanct. Um, Maybe we'll flash the details about that up on the screen later. But uh, did, before we move on to the dissent, do we want to talk about any of the other uh, concurrences such as about the Roberts concurrence?
1: I think... Ankar had some I mean, I thoughts can say a word. on that. I'll say a word about it. It's he, the concurrence is I think he also thinks there's not a right to abortion, but we didn't, that is we, the court, didn't have to rule on that in this case, that we just had to rule that the Mississippi law is banning abortion after 15 weeks. And we could say that that is um, the constitution does not prevent that without saying there's no right to abortion and without overturning then Casey and Roe. So he's, a, he's a, I often described as a judicial minimalist. And I think part of that, I think this actually, he sincerely holds this position that law should proceed incrementally where possible. And here he thinks there was an incremental change that was possible that you didn't have to disturb precedent in the way that the majority does. And I think, I suspect like just now reading sort of some of the conflicts on the court, some of the psychology on it. The Mississippi case was when it was first heard was not asking to overturn Roe. They asked for that afterwards. And I think that really upsets him that w- the court, we took this case not on the premise that we're deciding if Roe has to be overturned or not. And then I think if you read the majority opinion, this is certainly my view of it, there's a glee in overturning Roe. Yeah. And that I think he finds really disturbing. And if you think of it it's, he's it wants it to proceed incrementally. And it's not just like, this is a major change but that they're, they're sort of gleefully making this change. I think that uh, he's also responding to that, um, and so he, he concurs. I think it's, he concurs in judgment, but he would not have he would not have overturned Roe. He didn't think it was necessary to rule on this case. So I think we should start to talk about the
0: dissent. Um, but before we do that, I want to. Make the point that uh, even though we've we've been critical of this Dobbs decision overturning Roe uh, that I don't think we should uh, anyone should take that as implying that we think Roe was a perfect decision there was there were a lot of problems with the reasoning, and I think maybe we've we've highlighted some of them already just in the past few minutes, uh, but that I don't think that it, even when there are problems in the reasoning in the case, you can still agree with the, with the outcome of the case. And uh, since there have probably been questions about this in our audience, it's worth pointing out that in addition to being a vocal supporter of abortion rights, Ayn Rand herself had a positive view of the Roe decision. Uh, and in spite of having problems with its reasoning, and it's worth putting up on screen, um, the place where she says this, this is in her, Uh, Her lecture, Censorship Local and Express, where she's analyzing some of other decisions by the Supreme Court, and what she says there is, is, since inconsistent premises lead to inconsistent actions, it's not impossible that the present Supreme Court may make some liberating decisions. For instance, the court made a great contribution to justice and to the protection of individual rights when it legalized abortion. She's, of course, talking about Roe. I am not in agreement with all of the reasoning given in that decision, but I am in enthusiastic agreement with the result, i.e. with the recognition of a woman's right to her own body. And I I would add here that I don't think that it's uh, an accident that the result here was good because among the mixed inconsistent premises in Roe, the the better one that was actually used to, to justify abortion rights was the ground of personal liberty that the, the court explicitly makes reference to this via the 14th amendment and and others and you know, there's a question of did they did they appeal to the right aspects of the 14th amendment and in the right way and do they have this uh, as a principled commitment and i think the answer is probably no but it's it, they're not justifying this on some co- collectivist grounds for instance uh, the problem is how exactly they then try to reconcile that with other collectivist principles like this state's interest in uh, potential life. Um, but it and, is, it's uh, we can talk to note, more about yeah,
2: that. It's important to note here, Ben, just that almost every, quote, good decision the Supreme Court makes, we are going to disagree with the reasoning of it in terms of legal reasoning because they lack what we talked about before. They lack a proper definition of individual rights. They lack a proper approach, they've gutted the ninth, or they ignore the ninth, they don't really treat the 14th, right? So anytime we're celebrating what looks like a pro-liberty decision from the court, we're gonna quibble or, or have major disagreements
1: sometimes with the reasoning of it. I don't think Roe is unique in that sense. Yeah, I mean, my view of Roe, I think, Ben, tell me your experience, because I read Roe obviously having heard things about roe v wade and 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 the the it's a caricature that it's they invent a right to privacy, pulling it out of thin air, and then say this right justifies a right to abortion, and that's how conservatives but it, it it's like this is pretty broadly stated a lot of people say that they' just where do you get this right to privacy? If you read the decision, that is um you would fail a high school student if they gave a book report on the decision and said, oh, they just make up a right to privacy. That is not what is going on in the decision. And notice the quote from Ayn Rand that you gave Ben, it was, I'm not in agreement with all of the reason, which means she's in agreement with some of it. And she should be in agreement with some of it. As Supreme Court decisions go, I think, this is one of the better ones. And one of the reasons that we're never going to agree with the reasoning, in addition to some of the things Iran brought up, is there now exists contradictions in constitutional law. So until those contradictions are addressed, you're never going to get a perfect decision because they're going to say some things and you're going to say, but doesn't that conflict with another decision here? And the answer is yes, it does conflict with it. And to achieve consistency would be a long range project, but that doesn't mean you can't still think some decisions are better and worse. And Roe is much, much, much better than dogs.
0: Yeah, when I first read the Roe decision some years ago, I went in expecting it to be worse than I found it to be. Uh, there, is, there is this brief reference to a right to privacy, which is certainly the wrong way to conceptualize the issue Abortion isn't about keeping information secret from other people. It's about making a decision, an autonomous decision about how to uh, uh, use your own body. And in fact, there are there's there's probably, by my memory at least, there's more in Roe about personal liberty than there is about privacy. And in fact, the court stopped talking about uh, privacy. I think by the time it got to Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and mostly emphasized the the liberty rights. That was also the major argument that that the uh, respondents were making in this in the Dobbs decision, uh, appealing mostly to liberty rights. So yeah, it it I think it is uh, a better decision than it's given credit for, in spite of the fact that there are uh, these problems. So let's take a look at the actual dissent. And the way that I would summarize the dissent is that it reflects the mixed premises of Roe, uh, both the the better and the worse. And as we were just saying about Roe, the the parts that are better are better than you might expect, even though this is coming from a kind of left-leaning progressive, the, the left-leaning progressive wing of the court. And I'll 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 concretize this just by reading a passage from close to the beginning of the dissent, uh, where they basically lay out their basic principles and preview the argument that they're going to give. And I think I think this is very good. Listen, they say Roe and Casey were from the beginning and even more now embedded in core constitutional concepts of individual freedom and of the equal rights of citizens to decide on the shape of their lives. Those legal concepts one might even say have gone far toward defining what it means to be an American For in this nation, we do not believe that a government controlling all private choices is compatible with a free people. So we do not, as the majority insists today, place everything within the reach of majorities and government officials. We believe in a constitution that puts some issues off limits to majority rule. Even in the face of public opposition, we uphold the right of individuals, yes, including women, to make their own choices and chart their own futures, or at least we did once. Now, I think you can certainly take this these justices to task for whether or not they themselves have lived up to these principles in their other decisions, and even in the way they've worded this, they're hedging a bit. They're saying, you know, we we don't think that all private choices uh, should be uh, uh, controlled by government, and some need to be off limits to majority rule. So definitely take issue with those quantifiers, but just in its overall spirit and sentiment here. I mean, this is this is on the money. Any any thoughts about that passage? Ankar or your own or related issues.
2: What well, is interesting, just in terms of the evolution here, that the right has become more of the, you know, more of the uh, putting emphasis on majoritarian rule and on democracy, on the will of the people, and, and that the left is now making arguments about some rights are beyond uh, the reach. Um, so it 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 you know it used to be at least that the that the right used to argue that oh no we're not a democracy we we've got a constitution with rights and
1: they basically gutted that whole approach in uh, in the last few years this the i'm going to talk about this in the ocon talk but the dobbs decision explicitly is that what we are is a democracy okay. except for the eight first eight amendments in the in the bill of rights other than that we're a democracy um, and that is what they think it means to understand our history and tradition. And you could you couldn't make this up. you couldn't make up that these are supposedly really learned people and who are are spending days and days looking at the history and traditions of the United States of America, And their conclusion is we're a democracy and 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 that,
2: you know people people talk a lot about Scalia, but Scalia, to a large extent brought this into the the discussion, this whole idea of 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 what does the majority, the majority will. i mean, he's he's noted for saying that he thought ultimately individual rights were nonsense on stilts. I mean, uh, quoting Bentham. And uh, you know, this whole approach, you know, it's the Constitution is not there to protect rights. it's It's just a it's it's, it's a create kind of a framework from, uh, for us that, and we need to review it. Uh, but within the context of, of majoritarianism, within the context of democracy, it, it's really pretty, I mean, it's it's truly disturbing from the right that, that still verbally says how committed they are to the founders, how deeply they misunderstand the founders and how deeply reject some of the fundamental premises of the founders. I mean, if you read Madison, how can you come away thinking we're democracy and how can you come away ignoring the Ninth Amendment? How, you know, and, and or, or, so it's, it's, it's truly, the evolution of the right legally is truly shocking. Uh, the image
0: versus what they actually uh, argue. Related to that, one of the things that I thought was, was better about this dissent is the the fact that it makes a point about the founders and that it's important that they put their foundational principles the one the ones that were just mentioned in the passage i read in general form in order to provide guidance for the future because they knew that they were founding a new nation that it was revolutionary that there was there was a future they couldn't foresee or only see dimly uh, they quote a line from uh, Justice Marshall, where he basically makes this point in one of the early decisions. So, it, it, I, and and they talk about how the fact how you can you can have general principles founded uh, in constitutional principles, which which evolve over time, but are still constrained by uh, the founding principles. So it's not anything goes. Now they don't provide a lot of guidance for exactly how they provide that constraint, and God knows. Uh, these justices haven't haven't um, understood how to exercise it themselves, but I mean that's also fundamentally right, I think. Any thoughts on on that issue?
1: Yeah, so l- let me say something just about dis- the dissent in general. Uh, so when the decision came out, we had already read the draft, and we did a podcast on the draft about what it is, and the draft is basically. I mean, sort of the the actual decision is basically unchanged from the draft, except for there's a section that's addressing the dissent. And when I read, so I reread the the decision. So um, it's since it's the same, it's rereading it. And I was pretty depressed, even though I'd read it and knew everything that was in it, but now thinking this is the law of the land and this is how the Supreme Court says we should look at the law. And when I got to the dissent, I had, maybe it was that I had low expectations, but I did not expect much from the dissent. It is a forceful protest. Now, it's easier to protest than it is to write a majority opinion. So and this is part of what you were saying. Ben. so it's easy to say this can't be what our principles mean. And indeed, there's an element in in the dissent of, you know, you the majority don't even understand what a principle is, um, and they're right about that. The question of do they understand what a principle is and how it should work in law and so on—that like if they're when they're writing a majority opinion, they have to really deal with that because then they're saying this is how this principle applies to these circumstances and so on. And yeah, they're not good at that. So a dissent is easier than a majority opinion. But this is a forceful dissent. And just to start off that one of the things they do is we're not gonna let you um, pretend that you're doing something other than what you're doing in this majority opinion. So very early on, what it says is that what the court is doing, what it's saying, what this decision says is quote, from the moment of fertilization, a woman has no rights to speak up, a state can force her to bring a pregnancy to term. Close quote. That is exactly what this decision says. Yeah. Um, and then it, the importance of this, it is this is quote again from very early in the dissent. Quote: A state can that a state can thus transform what, when freely undertaken, is a wonder, into what, when forced, may be a nightmare close quote and it has a lot of things like this. One of the things about that's powerful about the dissent it's the first time an individual is back on the scene. the majority the majority opinion is criticizing Roe some of the criticisms are valid a lot of the criticisms aren't valid and then going through our history and traditions as one big collective and there's never any talk about what about the individual? They only address the individual woman because the dissent brings it up. And that's it's discussed in the section that's added to deal with the dissent. And the dissent is focused on you're stripping an individual woman of her rights that she previously had, and that this is an outrage. And they're right that it's an outrage, whether they could fully defend why it's an outrage or so, but that it that's part of what the power of the defense is. I wish, the, the, of so, uh, the dissent, my wish, I don't think it's going to materialize, I wish democratic politicians would read the dissent and take talking points from it, because the dissent is, like, this is part of the problem in it, but it's not um, a, a woman should have an absolute right to an abortion and something. It's It's not that, but there's so many things that you could use from the dissent that would properly used, I think, would win over a lot of Americans, um, because it's not true that most Americans want to uh, uh, abolish abortion from um, conception. Yeah, I mean, the, the data
2: is pretty clear that most Americans support abortion, uh, at least in the first uh, first trimester, or first couple of trimester, uh, first trimester. So uh, it would not be, a complete ban is not popular in America, and it's not even clear that it would achieve a majority, even in in uh, what it, what are called red states, um, a lot of Republican women are not as uh, as anti-abortion as uh, as many of their male counterparts are.
0: Yeah, uh, that's definitely true in Texas, where where the polls consistently show that a majority of of people are not do not want the the kind of total abortion ban that. They're about to get because of the trigger law here. Um, yeah, but, I and, to and talk- the anti-abortion, the
2: anti-abortion movement is so, you know, uh, virulent and so, you know, so hostile. It's very difficult. I, I remember I gave a talk once in Colorado, in Colorado Springs, very religious, and uh, the first question I got was on abortion, and I, you know, I came out, you know, and Shocking. I was so shocked. I, I you know, a, a significant percentage of the, of the audience clapped when I finished. And it was all the women. And they were, they were clapping while sitting down. They weren't, you know, they weren't making a big deal out of it. But uh, it, was, it was truly enlightening to see how much opposition there is when they present themselves as a united front. But there really is underneath quite a bit of opposition. I don't know if that's still true today. That was, there was... Almost a decade ago.
0: One of the other things I thought was pretty good about the dissent is was the way it dealt with the issue of whether or not the Dobbs decision would justify overturning other precedents about personal liberty. Uh, it it notes that the the, the decision claims that it wouldn't justify this that it notes how the decision says nothing we say here should be construed as uh, having any bearing on other precedents. But the dissent points out that the logic of the majority's decision really would have implications that if the whole if the whole framework of reasoning is this idea that what's a guide for whether there's an enumerate an unenumerated right is whether the laws whether there were corresponding laws in the country's history and tradition, well, then that is your standard. And there was no real substantial history of protection for abortion rights in American legal tradition. That's the logic that the court is offering. The only stipulation that the majority makes for why it shouldn't have any implications is is to say, well, but abortion's special because abortion concerns uh, potential life and these other precedents don't. And the dissent also, I think, helpfully points out that otherwise, the majority is trying to say that they're not expressing a view about the status of the fetus. And so this uh, this stipulation that it's different because of potential life uh, is is pretty arbitrary on their par- on their point. It's on their part. It's not consistent with the general line of reasoning, and it's inconsistent with uh, the the kind of neutrality that the majority claims that they are otherwise uh, taking on the kind of moral philosophical issue here. Um, any, any thoughts on the issue of how the dissent deals with these precedents?
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're right that it, it, it focuses on the right thing in this context, which is that if the way you think about a right is to delve back into the, our so-called history and traditions and look what people did then and what they thought, but it's not even really what they thought it's such part of the whole issue is their view of history and tradition is concrete bound. So it's, can I find someone acting in the way this person wants to act now? And then they allow like Kavanaugh in, we didn't talk about his concurrence, but in his it's, yeah, of course these things apply to new things. So freedom of speech apply. I think he brings up the internet or something like that or cell phones applies. Um, But uh, that's the extent that they allow something new. And this is in the, the majority opinion, but abortion's not new. It's been going on all the time. You can't say it's new and look what people did when the, the... And they rightly say, if this is how you understand rights, all kinds of rights, and it's, and it's not actually even unenumerated rights. It's the enumerated right. If this is how you think of an enumerated right, various decisions of the court are also in jeopardy. If what it really means to understand those is to do this kind of historic tradition, um, analysis of what they're doing, in Dobbs, if that's what it looks like, there's a lot of things in jeopardy. It doesn't mean they'll overturn, and this is where the Starry decisis issue comes in. It, in effect, the way that, so there's disagreement basically on everything from the dissent and the majority. The majority's understanding of Starry decisis, I think there'll be many cases where because they don't want to overturn it they'll say stare decisis makes it that we can't overturn it even though our method would lead to its being overturned so so it's not that everything will be overturned but the dissent is right that if you use this method a lot of things should be overturned
2: yeah this plays right into the subjectivism which is inherent in both sides here they'll do what they want to do and they'll find they'll find reasoning to justify what they want to do. And if they decide not to overturn something, they'll they'll use the, the precedent. And if they decide to overturn it, they'll overturn it. There's no principle guiding them other than maybe some bad principles related to
1: a political or religious agenda that some of these justices have. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one issue, Ben, that you wanted to talk about, about questions about the legitimacy of the court. And this is one, um, You can bring up others that you think are important. But one is, is the court now functioning of we've got a conclusion, let's find an argument that justifies it. And that was part of the criticism of Roe, in effect, that it's, they want to protect abortion, so they invent a right to privacy, as we've talked about, they did not just invent a right to privacy but you can have some concern about that in Roe. I don't think in the end it's legitimate, but now with this decision, that it's the since the whole appointment process, so much focus on Roe v. Wade. And some of them said, at least it would, like it would take a lot for us to overturn and they overturn it now the first chance they get over the objection of the chief justice and so on. One of the issues about the legitimacy of the court now is that, is it, okay, they've got conclusions, and now they fish around for arguments that justify them. And that's not what it means to follow the law. Well, and, and, and you,
2: you know, it used to be that there used to be judges that you weren't sure how they would rule on a particular issue and who changed over their career, who started in a particular position and moved over time. You don't get a sense of any of these judges, both left and right are going to change on anything you know maybe Roberts maybe he's the only one but they're not open they're not, they're not they're not looking at these cases fresh they're not they're not they seem to have a political agenda that they are that motivates everything that they do and in that sense I don't know the history of the court that well so maybe this is wrong but it seems like this is the more politicized supreme court ever in terms of rigid ideological stance they know what they want and there's really no debate and discussion going on uh about really the constitutionality they'll find what they need to find in the constitution if they have to get there at least that's my impression and say you know we should talk to somebody who has maybe knowledge of the history if this is if it's been this bad
1: well Well, last thing that i wanted to Oh, go yeah, go I think it's certainly around the New Deal. It was this bad. Yes, that's right.
2: In the New Deal, but in New Deal, in a sense, it was explicit, right? I mean, FDR said, this is what I'm doing, right? I'm, I'm, I, this is an agenda I need to get it passed. I'm going to pack the court, in a sense, with these people. Here, they're still pretending that it, this is not the case, but it's just as bad as the New Deal, and this time the right is doing it, and it's doing it for all, you know, I... I, I Ben looks a little skeptical.
0: No, I'm just uh, thinking of shaking my (laughs) head. Let's. uh, I I think we should move on to the problems with the dissent at this point. Um, In spite of some of these uh, better points, and there were a few others that I didn't get a chance to mention, uh, there's there's definitely still some some significant shortcomings in this dissent. I think the biggest of them is. Is just that it 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 really gives away the game when it concedes, as of course Roe did, uh, that there is a state interest in potential life, and it uh, thinks that it it argues that Roe effectively balanced the state's interest in potential life with the state's interest in personal liberty, and then. You know, if you're going to try to balance those two, you've got to come up with some mechanism for doing that. The one that Roe came up with was viability. They said, if you allow abortion rights up to the point of viability, then you're at least allowing for personal liberty until that point. And then thereafter, the state, the state's interest in potential life takes over. And of course, this viability standard, which uh, is is a, a subject of relentless criticism by the majority opinion and by the petitioners on this issue because it is pretty arbitrary standard. Uh, And the row never really justified it to begin with. The dissent never really justifies it. Uh, It doesn't answer numerous arguments against it, including that viability changes with technology. It changes with the availability of uh, healthcare in the particular region of the country. And so what would count as viability in one place in time would be different. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a very objective standard and yet they need some standard like that to pull off this balance. They don't seem to have one. They don't want to propose a different standard. So it's, it's very weak in that regard. And it, it, the, the initial pragmatism of the decision buries its way into this dissent and it's, it, it ends up making the dissent a lot less principled looking than it could have. Uh, Thoughts on this aspect of
1: their argument? Yeah, the viability standard, you can in the end defend, and it's true, it is hard to apply. But on the other hand, given a lot of the standards the court uses for various things, that this is Hard to apply in comparison to those other standards in other areas of law, including just the scrutiny. So there's strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, lower scrutiny. Um, and that, like, there their guidelines for how to balance. And the idea of competing rights versus the, what the state wants to do. And the idea that, like, these are easy to apply is not true. So from that perspective that there's something especially defective about the law here because that's part of what the majority opinion saying this has to be overturned is this is completely unworkable nobody knows what to do that that I think is untrue and the dissent says that, that it's not what the case history shows but on the other hand yeah they can't defend it they give so I think the When you read part of the history of the viability standard, Roe made a mistake that it doesn't really mean. um, Roe talks about viability as, I think, what it means, but it's not what it says. What it means is if the, so take a premature bird, if it's able to survive through natural means, but that's, the mother taking care of it, and so on. then that's the point at which you have um this the state has an interest. the state now can say what happens and and but it puts in um something like albeit by artificial means, and this is what opens up then it's well, you could hook it up to a machine and maybe you could even take uh, we'll get technology that you could um. Uh, have an artificial womb from the start, and so on, and then we could put it in there, and the, so that what makes it seem like uh, this line is both unclear and will be always changing. And this is the first person that I've seen in the court that really brings this up is O'Connor, um, in first in dissents on abortion cases, is saying that it's like if if it means this artificial thing, then it's. Um, it, it's not a real standard. I don't think it's what Roe actually meant, but it is true that it's what Roe said um, in, in sort of a kind of passing remark, and it's a disaster. Um, on the, the, I would just say, if you're gonna do balancing like this, and if you put viability and take it out of this kind of artificial technology context, it's, I can understand why they thought that this is where we're gonna do, like if, if you're doing balancing, I don't think it's a crazy thing to think of it at that point. And in the way that they think of all kinds of other balancing, yeah, it fits in with the way they think. The court more broadly thinks about balancing what it calls competing interests and in rights.
0: That's if you're gonna do balancing, but right. you, you pointed out, Ankar, I think you're right that uh, you can't ultimately defend the viability standard and i think the, the basic reason so even if you can figure out when viability is using that natural method as opposed to artificial methods the question is still well why should that be the standard and right. if if you think about what viability actually is what it what it means is just well that it's capable of surviving on its own but that's just another way of stating that it's a potential life uh, and that's a very different thing from being an actual human individual life. And as we've argued previously, what really counts for rights is being an actual individual. And that's something we could talk more about if people have questions about it. I talk about it quite a lot in the book, in the very first chapter of the book, uh, why abortion rights should be uh, available until birth.
1: Um, and, it's, and you're one... just just to stress, you're, you're... You're, I think it's right the way you're reading the dissent. that They don't want to touch that issue. So yeah. what they're just insisting on is Casey and Roe are president. So let's stick to it. Let's not overturn it. And they're not defending this aspect of it. They're just, so they're relying on stare decisis versus what's the argument for why it's right? Um, and they're, it's conspicuous that they, they don't want to touch it.
0: On the issue of precedent, the, the the other major problem that I see with this dissent is that when they are talking about the issue of when it's okay to overturn major precedent, when they're talking about the issue of stare decisis and why they think stare decisis should uh, be maintained here, the, the Roe precedent, Roe and Casey should be maintained, they offer two examples of previous cases where major precedent has been overturned, where they think it was justifiable to do it. And then they try to argue, well, this is not like that. The two cases are one, Brown v. Board of Education, where I think that they've got a pretty good argument for why that was, <laughs> it was good to overturn it. And the, uh, the majority agrees with them. We could talk more about whether the majority has the right to do that. But the other major example of an overturned precedent that they give is Lochner. They talk about the role of West Coast Hotel in overturning the Lochner decision, and this they see as a model of a of overturning a major precedent. And the the problem, the big problem here, is that if you care about the constitutional principles that this dissent says they care about at the very beginning and the passages that they quoted from, if you really think that uh, liberty means more uh, than is explicitly enumerated. If you think that the founders gave us general advice for the future with general concepts that could be applied to many specific cases. Well, then the Lochner court's decision was right. And it shouldn't have been overturned. And you shouldn't be citing this as uh, an example of a great thing to overturn. And just for those who aren't aware of what this case was about, Lochner case was uh, late 19th century Case maybe it was early twentieth about economic liberties and about regulations on a on a small business owner, and the court initially found that the regulations were unjustifiable because they infringed on uh, Lochner's freedom of contract. And this, uh, by the time you get to the uh, Great Depression New Deal era, and there are all there's an impetus for all kinds of new economic regulations. The court decides no. Lochner was wrong. We're going to overturn that decision because we can't just read our uh, ideological preferences for free market economics into the meaning of the, int- the, the original intent of the founders, and you, so you can't assume you can't read into this Constitution substantive principles of economic freedom. Well, that's exactly the argument that the majority is making now in Dobbs, and they and they do so explicitly. By talking about why Lochner, in their view, was bad, and so if you're citing that as an example of a great idea of a great case to overturn and what proper overturning of precedent looks like, I think you're really, you're really giving away the case because uh, I mean there was no substantive unenumerated economic liberty uh, that uh, they could find in the tradition of the country in its laws. So uh, if if the Lochner decision should be overturned and then so should Roe, I would think.
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't have a consistent case. There's uh, what is interesting about them bringing up Lochner is then discussion of rights disappears. And the re- reason it was legitimate to overturn Lochner is collectivist, various collectivistic thing. The individual's gone. This Lochner was a, a baker in upstate New York and his, the reality of him, his life, what it required, what he wanted to do is that's gone. Um, and that's part of it, part of it's easier to write a dissent than it is to write a majority because it's like how are these consistent and Uh, this kind of dissent as a protest, doesn't have to worry as much about that, of how they're consistent, but also just thinking about it now in sort of the cultural discussion of this. I've seen many places where they say, this is the first time a right has been taken away from somebody. (laughs) That is not true. The rights to freedom of contract, freedom of trade, were taken away from people. Um, by the New Deal. Like if you think that Roosevelt was good, then you think it was good for him and sort of his whole um, kind of political force and administration to take rights away from people who previously enjoyed those rights. Um, And that, it's important to know that history just from a cultural perspective. It is not the first time rights were taken away. But also the law. I'll talk a bit about this in my talk um, on Saturday. That the Lochner issue haunts this from from Roe, so it's not just here. It's in Roe. It's in the descent in Roe, Um and it haunts this issue. It's why Roe is crafted in the way that it's crafted. So it's the, that the that Lochner was overturned. So Lochner's 1905. It's regarded as overturned in 1937. I think um, that it, it's a tragedy that it was overturned, um, and, and if- it. This is part of this is what when I said earlier that the Supreme Court law now has contradicts like it has major contradictions in it, so you can never get a decision that is um, that you can think of like is this really consistent with other things we've said? And so. On? Lochner is the, then it's overturning. Um, so Holmes is dissenting. it's called Lochner because okay. Holmes dissented in it. And now everybody thinks Holmes was obviously right in his dissent. So it's the overturning of Lochner that's the issue, but that that's the basic contradiction that now every Supreme court case, I think, or maybe that would be an exaggerating, but almost everyone that deals with rights can't get it anywhere close to correct because Lochner was overturned. And and the overturning of Lochner is the one thing that it
2: seems like everybody agrees about. That is, everybody agrees with that view. There's almost nobody, I don't know if there's anybody in the Supreme Court now who defends Lochner. Suddenly the majority opinion in Dobbs is is antagonistic to Lochner. So it, it, it really does seem that the one thing that they all recognize is,
1: uh, is that overturning Lochner was a good thing. And it's important to get what it is that they're agreeing with Then What they're mm. agreeing with is the state has unlimited power, except for when that power has been explicitly taken away from them by the amendments in the constitution. But it, you, your starting premise is the state has unlimited power. And that like, so if you think of the so-called right as on the side of freedom and the basic premise when they approach law is the state has unlimited power, um, you've got no idea what freedom.
0: Yep. Well, I think we should move on to the, the, the broader topic of the fundamental philosophical ideas and currents in our culture that have led us to this point. I came up with three and I'd be interested to hear if uh, both of you have any more than these three, but these are the three big ones that occur to me and feel free to add anything about any of them as I go through them. But the first is the, the way in which our culture is just saturated by the religious morality of selfless service and sacrifice. It's its clearly poisoning both sides of the political spectrum and both sides on this decision. So on the one hand, you've got the majority opinion, which as we've just been discussing, takes it for granted that anytime you come up with a state interest in helping somebody or something, that that's, just, that's justifiable just obviously and on its own terms. And so uh, if the state is interested in helping out fetuses, if it's interested in helping out uh, potential life, that gives it a reason to do it as long as it doesn't violate one of the very specifically enumerated liberties. Um, and by the same token, it, you see it poisoning the dissent, not just insofar as the dissent uh, concedes that state interest in potential life, but also because one thing that's dropped out of this discussion entirely, the, the, the dissent will at least talk about personal liberty. It doesn't talk about the right to the pursuit of happiness. And so, and generally in the in the abortion debate what you mostly get is stories about uh, terrible situations that women can be in because of uh, rape or incest and how they need to be able to get out of those which they're of course right about but there's underemphasis on the much more common and more ordinary cases of abortion where a woman gets it because she doesn't want a child. It's not the time in her life for it. Either she doesn't want a child at all or she doesn't want it now. She wants to pursue her happiness. She wants to pursue her career interests or existing relationships. And just none of that is as judged as important. And that aspect of the pursuit of happiness is not seen as, as important. I think because, uh, because it's, it's so, such an alien idea that there's something morally righteous about pursuing your happiness. Do you you, you both agree with
1: that aspect? I partially do. I read the dissent that it's better than the way you characterized it. Now, in the sense that part of the outrage is that women are losing control over their lives and they can't make these kinds of decisions and that this is the kind of a regular decision that women make so it's not just these. Um, uh, unusual cases that one has to point to and look her life might be at risk so yeah she wants to abort. it is, I think it is much more focused on the day to day lives and control that women need if they're going to be in control of their lives, but I do think it's true that they'll never put it in terms of the pursuit of happiness. And that is because that's too selfish an issue. Um, and everybody knows that altruism is correct. So even though there is an element that certainly is about the pursuit of happiness, they can't put it like that because that is then activates the moral issue. Is it legitimate, like, like morally properly pursuing your own selfish happiness? And the and the fact that they don't put it like that then makes it look like um. Like, why is this important what you're saying that a woman, there's a fetus and it's in jeopardy. And so if you can't strongly um, assert that, and they can't because of altruism, that undercuts, I think.
2: Yeah, and it, it makes it impossible to generalize as well to other issues. So it still remains, on this issue, we're protecting a woman's right to, to, to make decisions about her body, but we can't generalize that to anything else because we don't have a generalizing principle, pursuit of happiness being one generalized principle that, that would allow you to take it from the realm of abortion to other legal issues. So they're, they're very issue bound, concrete in a sense that they're concrete bound to the, this particular and then we'll have a different legal reasoning when it comes to some other issue.
0: Yankar, yeah, I think you're right that the dissent does talk about the effect of abortion bans on on women's lives and happiness uh, indirectly, but it's 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 noteworthy. The only place that really comes up is in the the discussion about stare decisis, because one of the one of the criteria for whether uh, whether stare decisis should apply, whether major precedents should be con- should be maintained, is when there are what they call reliance interests and as someone's come to rely on a law for making decisions about their life, uh, you should tend to favor keeping that law on the books or not. Um, um, and, and so they argue persuasively, I think, that the uh, majority opinion is far too dismissive of the reliance interests. The majority calls them intangible because they're not like uh, legal contracts that have been signed. Uh, but the the dissent says. Uh, this, you know, I'm just quoting here, this is to ignore as judges what we know as men and women, the interests women have in Roe and Casey are perfectly viscerally concrete. Countless women will now make different decisions about careers, education, relationships, and whether to try to become pregnant than they would have when Roe served as a backstop. So they're good on that. It's it is ridiculous that that's not tangible, but it's not framed, uh, th- it doesn't come up in the question of what's the constitutional basis for the right and certainly not the right to the pursuit of happiness. Uh, one of the other big philosophic uh, premises here that I think is at work in undermining abortion rights is, is collectivism, which is, of course, related. The reason that it's taken for granted that a state can have all these kinds of interests uh, as long as it doesn't um, infringe on explicitly enumerated rights is, is I think, as you mentioned, Ankara, this, the kind of collectivism that comes out of the New Deal. If there's uh, some uh, group of people who you can benefit, uh, in this case, if it's the uh, the interests of fetuses, well, that becomes a basis for collective action on the part of the state. Uh, even you don't see this so much in in this particular dissent, but in the discussion about abortion general, uh, generally speaking, uh, rights are treated more as group interests rather than claims of individuals. You see abortion is treated as a kind of a claim on behalf of women as a group and not so much as individuals and i think one implication of this is when when you think of rights that way when you don't think of them as rights that we have in virtue of being individuals you you end up losing sight of the fact that rights are fundamentally about the ability of individuals to disagree with each other to separate to disassociate and that then makes you lose sight of the fact that individual rights apply only to individuals, uh, as opposed to fetuses who are fused physically to the women and in fact, a member of a collective and not real individuals in their own right. What are your views on how the role of collectivism versus individualism plays into this debate and decision?
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said, Ben. And and it's it's um, you know this is why they ultimately depend on kind of majoritarian arguments because that's how you often defend a collectivistic view. It's it's the greatest good for the greatest number, or whatever. So you, you you boil it down to who who believes in what, and uh, and majorities, therefore, win out. And you notice that almost everybody makes these kind of democratic arguments these days, uh, you know, even, even when they've got an inkling of the right kind of approach, even when they, they start out talking about rights, they almost always fall back on some kind of, what does the, what is, what is the public want? What does the majority want? And that's, that's driven by this collectivism. They, they can't really def- protect the right of the
0: individual to actually pursue his own happiness, to actually pursue his own life. It's very interesting it? that when you see when you look at the response on the part of the left to the Dobbs decision, that even though th- the dissent is saying there need to be rights that are untouchable by majorities, still the left says the court's being undemocratic because a majority yes. of people disagree yeah. with this decision. And that's just their that's just their knee-jerk default response. Yeah.
2: Of everybody
1: on on all sides, it's scary. Okay. Yeah, another aspect of this, or two other aspects. So one, I've heard a lot of people, including like just in, in conversation with people about, in effect, it's something like, what's the big deal? This is just being left to the states. Yeah. And that's collectivism. That is, because here what you had was some recognition of an individual right. And it's, no, I don't want that. I want it left to the states so they can say you don't have an individual right. Um, but and notice if you push that argument, what happens? If you push, why should it be left to the states? Why not to each county in the state? And why not not just each county, each city or each city block? Or how about just the individual it's left to, oh no, it can't be left to the individual. And that is they want the power. So when they say it's left to the states, what that means it's left to state power to take over the life of the individual. And that is what I want. And this, I think um, this was Ayn Rand's analysis. So we're talking about sort of deep philosophical premises here of conservatives and liberals. Now, I think we're, in many ways beyond her analysis, in the sense that the rank and file members of these two, if they're still identified even as conservatives and liberals, don't share, they're they're worse than what she was talking about. Um, They're more tribal, they're more collectivistic, and they're just more tribal in part is more primitive. They're primitive in their premises. More thinking. Yeah, more And. But here, when we're at, still at the level of the Supreme Court and Supreme Court Justices and so on, they're not unthinking. Mm-hmm. And what you see is on the, the what would be put as the left-leaning judges, in this case, the dissent. What animates them is controlling the economic realm. Um, and Ayn Rand's view was like, th- they both have a mind-body split. And they want to control what they think is the important element in life. So the liberals think the important element in life is the material world, production, money, economics. So don't you dare tell us that you've got rights here that we and we can't control. Don't you dare tell us that a baker who wants to hire someone and that person wants to work more than 60 hours, don't you dare tell us we can't override that. Because that's what they want to control. And part of the Dobbs decision there's a glee in now finally the state has control over abortion and that is what they care about but care about here means what they want to control what they think is the fundamental in life and therefore they want to control it um, is the so-called spiritual realm and it's sex and the um, and that's what animates them. And you can see, like, they're they're animated by, we finally get to overturn Roe and take away these rights. And why these rights? And it's because it's on the side of the mind-body split of the so-called soul or the spiritual. That's what they think's um, important and we want to control. But, and they're but, like what allowed, think,
2: yeah. but what I think is worse even than what, what I meant identified is that today both sides want to control both. And, it, you know, there might be exceptions with abortion. The left is better, but uh, the left has abandoned its defense of free speech, for example. Um, and the right has abandoned its defense of, of economic liberties or any kind of defense of economic liberties. So, the, so, the, so the, 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 the conservative judges are so eager to, uh, to mention positively the overriding of Lochner is, uh, you know, is, is truly shocking and suggests that they don't care about economic liberty either. That both sides now, uh, while it's true that the right still emphasizes the spiritual more than the material and the left the opposite, they both want to regulate everything. They both want to control. And in that sense, I think both left and right have become so much more authoritarian than they were uh, in, in the 1960s and 70s when Ayn Rand was writing. Um, and that, I think, is what should really, really scare people is if is is the extent to which both sides now view state interests as the ultimate and and they want to embed state control um, over the individual. they want to they want to legitimize that in every aspect of our lives.
0: and one place where you see that, I think, especially is on is on abortion because it's it's not a it's it's an example of controlling both the realms of the material and the spiritual this is talking about a woman's control over her body there's nothing more material than that uh, not uh, material is uh, the material realm is normally what you think of as the economic realm and that's what the right doesn't want to control but here they do and you can't really separate mind and body anyway so it's no wonder that you that and part of my point is that
2: issue. the right wants to control the economic realm as well now that's gone right that idea exactly the, 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 and 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 the, and the left wants to control the spiritual realm with exception maybe of abortion because because they, they you know they, they've given up on free speech and things like that so there's it's a really really scary time
1: yeah so this is part I when i said her analysis is in most ways it's no longer appropriate we're like we're past the point at which this analysis applies. i think the supreme court is the last vestiges of this that we're seeing it, but it's untenable. So it is no. like you can't and and even in the dissent. So Ben, you were putting it a few times, they concede the state interest and so on. I don't think it's a concession. I think it is they, yes, of course the state has an interest. And even in certain ways, it's a ratcheting up. And that's what happens, I think, from Roe. That gets ratcheted up. One of the things in the dissent, it's now, there's a quote, an exceptionally significant interest in disallowing abortions in the later phase of a pregnancy, close quote, and it goes on to add things to that. So now it's not just an interest or a compelling interest, but compelling is a kind of term of art in law. It's an exceptionally significant interest and don't you dare say that we don't say the state has such an interest in abortion. It, it's, and that's not a concession. It's worse, unfortunately.
2: Anka, can you say something about, uh, just I'm seeing confusion on the chat. Can you say something about why state rights and leaving it to the states is, co-
1: is collectivism? So the concept of states' rights is collectivism. A yep. state does not have rights. A state, ha- a, or so let's put it as a government, but it's, whether it's a federal government, a state government, a municipal government, on the American conception has only those powers which are granted to it by the citizenry. But the citizenry can only grant those powers to the government that it's legitimate for a citizen to grant. Like I can't grant the uh, government the right to enslave you. And I can say that I've done that and so on, but that is not the American conception. It's not your power to grant to government or to delegate is the better term. It's, I'm delegating the enforcement of my rights to government. And you can only delegate the enforcement of your rights if that really is a right of yours. So a state, it's not just the federal government that has, in the the American conception, has enumerated powers. And if it hasn't been granted this power, it doesn't have it. Every government in the American system is like that. And certainly after the Civil War, it has to be thought of like this. So leaving it to the states, Yes. If what the state is doing is protecting rights, there are certain things that are it's proper at the state level, just at, at the municipal level. But it, what the government has to be doing is protecting rights. Here they want to give it, and explicitly, they want to give it back to the states. So And this is what was good in the dissent. What, it's, what this judgment says is the woman has no right to abort. And we're giving it back to the states, so they could exert total power. Yes, we know, unfortunately, that some states like California won't prohibit abortions. We wish it would. I think that's implicit actually in the decision. Yeah, we know, but the ones that wanna do that, we're giving you back the power to do that. And that is not a respect for rights or the individual.
0: I've uh, seen this issue discussed by uh, various people who say, what's the big deal if we leave this to the state who will concede that there are certain kinds of things the states shouldn't be able to do. They'll say, yeah, of course 14th amendment was there uh, because of reconstruction and gross violations of uh, the rights of uh, minorities and there shouldn't be slavery but abortion is different. And it's not that bad. It's not that bad for states to enforce uh, bans on abortion. And on that point, I just, I really want to push back because let's not forget that the 13th Amendment is an amendment against involuntary servitude, forced labor. And I just, I don't think you can get anything closer to uh, forced labor that is now going to be permitted in our country than Bans on abortion. That's that's what it is. It's when a woman is forced for nine months to carry uh, a fetus and then to give birth to it, which which is a, a pretty tortuous procedure, if not you know a forced uh, surgery, C-section. Then I, I don't know what forced labor would be. And the arguments to say, well, she consented to it because she had sex, are bogus, uh, because. Uh, because that's not what she consented to, and and the fact that she, she may have been using uh, contraception anyway is is a, one of many signs of that so it, you can't you can't say this isn't anything as bad as as slavery. slavery was worse, but this is this is nine months of that mm-hmm. so we should I think we should start to wrap up by by talking about the future and what is the way forward on this topic. Uh, The way I like to think of it and tell me if you agree or disagree is that even though Roe was a good result because of the fact that the reasoning in it was flawed because it involved so many mixed premises and because even the dissent that we see today involves many of those same kinds of mixed premises. Even though it was a good result with the judges didn't really earn it and the public doesn't really understand it and so the only real way forward is 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 philosophic change that helps people actually understand the concept of individual rights but that's going to take a while and so in the meantime what is the what is the most realistic expectation for for those of us who still want to define still want to defend uh, and safeguard abortion rights in some meaningful way. I have some thoughts, but I'd like to hear what both of you say first.
1: I mean, I think there's a variety of things that can be done and how this is going to play out both politically and legally. I, it's certainly to me, it's not obvious how it will play out. So the what the Supreme Court has said is, we don't find a right to abortion in the federal constitution. That doesn't constrain uh, the judge, Supreme Court justices of various states for saying, but we do find it in our state constitutions, and they have references to liberty and so on. And just because this is how the, the, we now have a what would be called an originalist majority, in the Supreme Court, that and the, so this is how they analyze things. Um, it, it that doesn't constrain the Supreme Courts in the various states. So I could see some decisions happening in some of these. I mean, cases being brought and decisions happening where they say no, our constitution, our state constitution does protect a right to abortion. It'll still be a kind of balancing. You might get something like Roe or Casey or so on. But I could see something like that happening legally, and for the kind of legal activists and so on, I think that is one strategy to take. Um, And on the political level, as I indicated before, I do think this is an issue that if the Democrats approached it correctly, now I don't mean they will not approach it at all correctly from a philosophical issue, but if they approach it from a woman has to have some kind of right to end her pregnancy and have an abortion. Yeah, it's limited by these other things, but it, you can't be that from the moment of conception or the descent puts it, the moment of fertilization, she doesn't have any such right and so on. And this is what these yahoos on the other side are saying and so on. Are you really going to vote for them? like That, if done right, I think is a winning political argument in many places including in some red states. So if you could do it in all kinds of incorrect ways, and I would bet that the Democrats will do that, but um, I could like, so as a way forward, you could get some better people in on who who will, I think only find a home right now in the democratic side of the aisle who could make arguments that would um, have an impact here in terms of just of representatives in government. And what their views are about the legality of abortion,
0: and, and it, it happens, has an impact. Has happened it, yeah. in Montana and Kansas. There are there were state supreme court decisions that codified uh, rights to abortion based on the state constitution. Now in Kansas, they're going to have a referendum coming up soon where people decide whether or not the court was right about that, whether or not to amend the constitution. So that'll be an interesting election to watch. And there are a number of
2: referendums, I think, being proposed around the country now. And there are going to be more, I think, that, that, that try to codify this and try to bring it directly to the people rather than just have it as uh, representatives. Uh, but it's also going to be relevant in federal elections because it is true that Congress could pass a law. And, of course, one of the first things that, that some Republicans uh, said after, the, after Dobbs was, okay, well, what we need now is a ban. A federal ban on abortion and and um, if, if, if Republicans get 60 um, 60 senators and if they you know if they win the house and they get 60 senators and they have the presidency, uh, they could pass a, a law that just bans abortion from conception um, uh, you know across the entire country and that that would create quite a it would it would be interesting to see what kind of response that would get. Uh, so this is, again, a talking point, I think, for Democrats. Uh, on the other hand, the flip side, of course, is Democrats got 60 senators and everything. They could pass a law that, uh, that legalized abortion across the entire entire country. So this is going to be, this is going to play out in the federal election. You know, I think that Republicans are more likely to get 60 senators than Democrats are in, in the foreseeable future. I think the Democratic Party is in decline, but... Um, not everybody sees it that way but it's it's going to be it this is going to be fought out politically it's going to become a major issue if the Democrats are smart, this will become a major issue as I agree completely with oncar if they if they position themselves right, they could attract a lot of voters that typically wouldn't vote democratic uh, on because of this one issue I think uh, again, a lot of women uh, who are independent, a lot of women who are even republican i think uh, This is an important enough issue for them that they might vote Democratic. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the midterms uh, this year, the extent to which Democrats make this an issue, to the extent to which uh, voters care about this issue. Um, It's going to be fascinating to watch. It's going to be scary uh, and unpleasant in many cases, but it's going to be fascinating to watch.
0: I do think that federal legislation, one way or the other, is pretty unrealistic at this point. And that's if you take the court at their word, because the argument they're making is that is that the federal government has has no role whatsoever in regulating or not regit or recognizing a right on this issue. Uh, Kavanaugh, especially, is explicit about this in his concurrence. He says there shouldn't be a federal uh, right. There shouldn't be a federal ban. And so if we take them at their word, they would, they would strike down either of those pieces of federal legislation. Now, I don't know if we should take them at their word. Maybe. But I don't, I mean, it I
2: don't take what the... they would because they would, we saw with, with Dobbs that they would is meaningless. I mean, they, they, they said specific things to specific senators and to the committees when they were nominated, uh, that they've, they've, uh, they've obviously lied about. So I don't take them at their word, but th- that would be interesting. And Ankar, you want to say something on this?
1: Yeah, so I don't know, it'd be better to talk to someone, a lawyer and and who does constitutional law in regard to this. The dissent brings up, and I'm sympathetic to this, the idea that this is just now left to the states, the dissent in effect says that's BS. And I think it is BS. Um, I'll talk in my talk about the basic reason. Unfortunately, I'm pretty pessimistic about this, that I think there's a whole... This is an animating issue for these people who want to um, uh, enforce their views at the point of a gun. There's a long strategy here. I think this is the first step. It is not the last step in the strategy. And I think the strategy is at a federal level as well as state levels, but just leave that aside. I'll, that That's a, a teaser for the talk on Saturday. Um, on what basis would they overturn legislation uh, federal legislation on this? So if it's if the Democrats do it and say there's a right to abortion, they tie it to health care and so on, the view is, yeah, of course the government can control healthcare. And so how what are we going to strike this down on? And from the other side, if they enact it, they but this this connects to what I'll talk about in the talk. Um they they won't over they won't say the Constitution uh, prohibits a federal ban on abortion. I I would bet. I
2: I agree. That, I don't see honest. any way any way the courts uh, oppose it. I mean, so they don't I turn it, a democratic one. The right would overturn it because they,
1: maybe, well, but but, the, yeah, but they I'll, would never overturn yes, a democratic one, one but not. For obvious reasons, I think, or yes, I mean, they're sort of obvious, but um, but what was I going to say? Um, yeah, so I'm sympathetic, Ben, to your view that there's an element of doing it at a federal level. Will that be political suicide? But I unfortunately don't think it's suicide from the point of view of the Supreme Court that they're gonna, they're going to say you can't do this.
0: Well, we're at an hour and a half. Uh, I think we, we've we gotten a bunch of questions, but I think I'm gonna recommend at this point that anybody who wants to discuss their question should come to Clubhouse, which we're gonna be doing right after this episode. And uh, I know there'll be plenty of questions to discuss. Uh, I think at least Ankar and I will, will be there. I don't, I don't think Yaron can join us, but uh, join us on Clubhouse, uh, download that on your phone, find the Ayn Rand Club. We'll be, we're there, we're playing this right, there now, and we will join as uh, separate individual discussions as soon as this podcast on uh, social media is over. So Ben, I'm going other...
2: to send you some super chat questions that were asked on my channel, so oh, that you great. can address the house if that's. Uh, so should Thanks. I send it to
0: your email? Sure, that'll that'll I'll I'll get that right away. Um, we have answered a number of the questions already that came in. I think in the course of our conversation, but I'm sure there'll be more. Some other. Uh, announcements and reminders. Some resources. First of all, if you'd like to learn more about the topics we've discussed today, and I'm not sure what order these came out in the slides, so just put them up, and I will, I will announce them as they as they come up. What's the first one? Yes. So first, uh, a reference to the podcast we did on this previously, discussing the uh, this one in particular is the, when we discussed the oral arguments in the Dobbs case. We actually played clips uh, from those proceedings, analyzed them discuss many of the issues that eventually came out in the decision. Uh, There's especially some discussion of Lochner. Clarence Thomas made uh, reference to that a number of occasions in the oral arguments. That was, I think, uh, back in December. And then another podcast that we did was the one when the uh, leaked decision came out. This is back in the beginning of May. Supreme Court abortion leak versus the rule of law. That's the title I was grasping for. You can uh, listen to that on our YouTube channel. If you go to bit.ly slash leak, v rule of law, we analyze the major claims of the majority opinion there. We didn't have as much time to do that today. That's because we already did it. So check that out. Also, there's, of course, uh, just to, to, we we read a paragraph uh, where Ayn Rand commented on the uh, her view of Roe v. Wade. That was taken from her talk Censorship Local and Express, which is published in Philosophy Who Needs It, but there's also a recording of that whole talk on our website and you can go and find it at bit.ly slash censorship local express. It's also the place where she talks about the point that Ankar referenced earlier in our conversation about how at least at the time in the 70s, it looked like the right wanted to uh, control the material realm, not the, the, sorry, the right wanted to control the spiritual realm, not the material and the left wanted to do vice versa. Uh, but they were coming together and they've come together even further. So you can read more about her philosophic take on the Supreme Court and its decisions there. Also, we have my book on this subject, Why the Right to Abortion is Sacrosanct. It's a short collection of essays from New Ideal where I analyze some of the major issues in the abortion controversy from an objectivist perspective explaining why the woman has an absolute individual right to abortion up until birth and why a wh- what the moral foundation for that is, why abortion isn't murder, why the fetus doesn't have rights and why it is supremely moral for the woman to elect an abortion when she needs to do it in order to pursue her own happiness. Also, we've got some reminder of some upcoming events. One is uh, this podcast, New Ideal Live, will be coming to you live from the Objectivist Conference next week in Washington, DC. Ankar and Yaron and a number of others will be participating in a panel on America's political culture. Now this will be on the usual day, Wednesday, Wednesday, July 16th, but it will be at a different time than usual. I believe one hour earlier than our usual time slot. That's to accommodate the schedule for OCON. This will be uh, actually a lunch that uh, people can attend live at Ocon and the people who attend lunch, and I think you can still buy tickets, uh, they'll get first dibs on asking questions on this topic. But we'll also be broadcasting this online and we'll be looking at online questions, uh, though they won't get first uh, priority because the people paying for the lunch will get that. Another item to mention from Ocon is the talk that Ankar will be giving, which we've referenced a few times now, called Dismantling Row. I don't yet know uh, how soon this is going to be available uh, for you to watch as a standalone video. Uh, there's a number of different things that are in play there but at the very least you can watch this if you get a pass, a, a virtual pass for the OCON conference itself. And if you go to ocon.iran.org, you can find out how to get that virtual pass where you can watch Ankar's talk among uh, many others. Jeroen and I are also giving talks at the conference. What else do we have? To remind people about. Well, just the usuals. If you you enjoyed this and you'd like to follow us in the future, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel, click the bell to get notifications. If you're watching the recording, leave a comment, like, share. That helps uh, boost this podcast in the eyes of the algorithms. Same thing if you're watching on Facebook, like, share, comment. And as usual, if you have questions about things that came up or you want to suggest new topics for the future, please send us a good old-fashioned email at newideal at Einrand.org. We answer all of these, and uh, or at least most of them, and we definitely consider suggested topics for the future. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ankar. Thank you, own This was, I think, the discussion that we all needed to have, and I'm sure we'll be having it in the future, uh, yep. Yep. including on Clubhouse, where we are about to go. So, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben.